welcome to Passport Mommy. I'm your host, Michelle Gerson. This show is for anyone raising little humans. We feature experts with tips and advice to enrich the lives of our children. Mom and dad entrepreneurs tell us their inspiring stories. Learn about products that could make both you and your child's life easier and more fun. And of course, fellow parents discuss and laugh about what's happening in their child's world. Motherhood is a journey. Thanks for joining me on mine. Welcome to Passport Mommy. I'm Michelle Gerson, and I am so happy to have our first guest on the show today because he is so inspirational. His story is captivating. It is amazing, and he has put it into a documentary. Neil Myers is an award-winning documentarian and amateur triathlete. Neil, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. Sure, thank you. So tell me a little bit about your journey and what you have gone through over the last few years. You bet. So as you mentioned, I'm an amateur triathlete and I was training in Santa Barbara about four years ago on a very steep road. It's called Gibraltar Road. Um, And I was done training. So I was on my way home and I was actually late for dinner as usual. So I was just racing down the hill. I came around a blind uh, curve and there was a truck in my lane coming right back at me. Had absolutely no chance to react. Hit it head on, went right through the windshield. Uh, I broke 16 bones in 26 places. I collapsed both lungs, bruised my heart, had a massive concussion and brain bleed. And that, Michelle, was just the first two-tenths of a second of my journey. From there, I was in ICU for three days in the hospital for the better part of a month. I got home. Uh, I walked after two months. I was in intensive rehab for four months. Uh, and then I started training for the Santa Barbara Tri, which is a really tough try that was held a year after my accident. Um, and it was just, I wanted to get back to where I was. That, that's incredible for anybody to go back to training so quickly. I mean, what a, a testament to your strength, both mentally and physically, uh, to get back out there. So you put this all into a documentary. Why did you decide to make this documentary? Yeah, so great question. And the truth is, Michelle, I didn't really want to at first. I thought making a documentary about yourself is just a little problematic. But um, the story was such an interesting story that the filmmaker in me says, this is a story I really can't not tell. Mm -hmm. Incredible. And so you, since you told your story, have won quite a number of awards. Congratulations. Tell me about, about those. Yeah, so it was... It's a it's an interesting thing. There's thousands of film festivals around the world. And once you make a documentary, you start putting yourself out there. Um, and it's a very vulnerable thing, you know, because this is something you put years of your life into. And the very first one I uh, put it in two weeks later, I won best documentary. It was the Sweden Film Awards. I think that just made gave me confidence. And so ultimately it was in 40 film festivals won 26 awards, a lot of best documentaries, but other awards too, best cinematography, best original score. My favorite was best love story, because that's the thing about it. It sounds like it's a race uh, about a race or about a recovery, but it's really about uh, love, love of the community, love of my family, my love of cycling. That's really what it was. Yeah. So tell me, let's talk about that. Let's back up a little bit. How did you get into cycling? Um, I, as a kid, uh, I was always cycling. Uh, my bike got stolen. I got a new one, got stolen. The third time it got stolen in high school, yeah. I said, that, I'm just done. So I didn't bike for a long time, but then I was in my 50s and 
uh, you know, you get to where you're starting to gain weight and you're not as healthy. And I said, you know, I'm going to get back to this. So I started cycling and I started swimming. I started running and uh, my son said, dad, you might as well just be a triathlete. You're already training for it. Right. Incredible. And so you talked about the love of the community and the love of your family. How did the people in your life and the community around you impact your recovery? Yeah, I can't imagine what it would have been like without that. When you're in this kind of accident, your brain really doesn't work for a long time. You're just, you're not, you can't think you're, you're just kind of out of it. But I had, everyone was there helping me and um, the nurses were amazing. The therapists, the doctors, and as I think I mentioned before, my wife uh, was there. She would get there every morning at seven and leave at seven that night, every single day. I don't know how I could have done it without that. Yeah, it really is. So much of healing has to do with emotional support. And so you are very lucky to have that. So what would you say is the hardest part and what has been the hardest part of your journey back to health? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think most people would say, you know, pain, because there's a lot of pain. I was in pain for six months straight. But it wasn't. The hardest thing really is patience because an accident like this is hard to recover from. It takes forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, in fact, I remember my charge nurse on the last day in the hospital, she came and said, she grabbed me by my shoulder, said, Neil, you're going to survive. You're going to heal. You will. But not every day is going to be a day forward. Some are going to be backwards. Just remember, you're going to get there. And, and her advice to me was expect the best, but accept the rest. Mm-hmm. And just to this day, kind of. I tear up when I think about that. Yeah. And that's good advice for anybody who's going through a number of different things. And so what other, uh, I don't want to say lessons, but what other things can we pull from your documentary that will inspire us, that will motivate us? Yeah. Um, gratitude. It, it. I would have hoped that I was a grateful person before the accident, but you can imagine that I'm more now. And, and gratitude is this amazing elixir. It's, a, it's kind of a twofer because number one, whatever you're grateful for, you've got that. In my case, I recovered. But gratitude in and of itself also is incredible in terms of what it does for your health and your mental well-being. And that really is, is the most amazing gift I got from this. Mm. So you talk about gratitude, and I know we hear the word gratitude a lot. A lot of people talk about it. And I think a lot of us who might be just in the daily grind or maybe having issues in our relationships or whatever the case may be. Everybody has their own struggles. How would you teach them to practice gratitude and to to get to that point? Yeah, good question. I will tell you, after I got home from the hospital, it got way worse because now you don't have the hospital, you don't have the nurses, and, and it's still a lot of pain. And I remember one evening, it was really the only time I was starting to get depressed. And I said, I'm going to go wheel myself into the office and just write down everything I'm grateful for. A huge amount of tears, took about an hour. You should see the list. It's like three pages long. And once you do that, I, I just don't know how you can't be grateful once you actually just catalog what it is. Yeah. Sometimes it does take that. You know, it's funny. Somebody just gave me a journal the other day. It's called the Evening Gratitude Journal. Mm. And they say every night, just sit down and write a few things that you are grateful for from that day. And it could be major, it could be minor. I completely agree. Yeah. So how how are you feeling today? You know, I feel absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm completely 100% healed, which I think surprises a lot of people. But when I talk to the doctors, they all say the same thing, which is this is what the human body knows how to do. You just have to do the work, but it'll do the rest. And it really did. Mm, Yeah, because I can imagine 
anybody else who could have been in an accident like yours mentally, they could have just said, I give up. There's no way. I can't believe this happened to me. And that's it. And I, a lot of it, I strongly believe is mind over matter. A hundred percent. And because I was in the accident, you can imagine a lot of people have been referred to me. Uh, Talk to Neil. He was in a bad accident too. And uh, I've been so disappointed that what you just said is true. And I, I just, I, you, you can't necessarily change how people look at it, but I wish I could because it, it you just have to have, you have to have the mentality that if I take one step and then another step and another step, I'll eventually get wherever I need to go. Right. Exactly. So do you have any races on the horizon? <laughs> I miss racing, but I don't race anymore because <laughs> I don't want to go back to the hospital. And so I don't ride fast anymore. And if you're not going to ride fast, really no point in racing, but I do still train. In fact, I've been up Gibraltar more after the accident than before. Mm, yeah. I think just training and who needs the actual race day, right? Just every day living your life healthy and doing what you love at your own pace. That's a good thing. You know, it's so true. And before the accident, I, all all of us that, that race felt the same way, which is the fun part of racing is training. That's right. really the Zen part. And on the race, you just show up that day to see what your training brought. You really have little impact on it. It's already the race is done by the time you get to it. Right, right, exactly. And I'm so impressed that when you were racing, you were already in your 60s. Is that correct? I was 61 day of the accident. Yep. Wow, incredible. So, where can we go to watch Climb and to find it in a theater near us? Sure. Well, just go to our website. It's climbdoc.org, um, and everything you need is there. You can watch the trader, read about it, and watch it there as well. And how can somebody get in touch with you if they would like to reach out to you? I imagine, do you do motivational speaking? Do you do, you do any kind of public speaking? Absolutely. And on the website, there's a contact us and you can say, you can just say hi, but you can also say that you want to inquire about uh, speaking engagements or private screening or that kind of thing. Terrific. You know, the, the truth is that's the fun part of telling the story is actually interacting with people. Right, exactly. And so tell me really quickly, I know you mentioned at the beginning the awards that you started winning, but how many awards overall have you won for Climb? 26. Amazing. And are yeah. you going to keep submitting it to other film festivals? No, that's why we're talking today. I'm I'm through that process and now I want to find an audience. So today's the big day. You're the first interview, by the way. Oh, wow. Well, I am honored. <laughs> I really am. And I'm honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Neil Myers. Thank you for starting my day off with motivation and inspiration. I really appreciate you joining me today on Passport Mommy. Oh, Michelle, thank you so much for having me. This was a fun conversation. It's my pleasure. And thank you for listening to Passport Mommy. If you're listening to this on your local radio station, you can also download the podcast on any of your podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you'd like to leave us a review, it helps others find this content as well. I'm Michelle Jerson. More coming up in a few. You're listening to Passport Mommy. I'm Michelle Jerson. And when I hear about this next topic, of course, you get very scared, especially as you have when you have children and you think this couldn't happen, this couldn't happen to young kids, this couldn't happen to people right here in our own country, but it does. And we're talking about human trafficking. And I'm really happy to have with me today, Brandy Bynum. She's the Department of Homeland Security Program Manager for the Blue Campaign. And January is Human Trafficking Prevention Month. January 11th is Wear Blue Day. Thank you so much for joining me today, Brandy. Thank you so much, Ms. Ellis of Pesler. Thank you for inviting me. 
Sure. So tell us a little bit about human trafficking and what a serious and complex problem it is. Absolutely. So human trafficking involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of labor or commercial sex act. It's important that if a trafficker is causing someone under the age of 18 to engage in a commercial sex act, regardless of using force, fraud, or coercion, it's automatically considered human trafficking under U.S. law. Also, human trafficking is both sex trafficking and labor trafficking. A lot of times we really only talk about sex trafficking, but in some parts of the U.S., labor trafficking is actually more prevalent. And the big thing about human trafficking is that it hinges on the exploitation of another person. So someone um, that is exchange exploiting a person in exchange for something of value. And that doesn't always have to be money. It can be something expensive like makeup or phones, um, or the newest um, shoes, anything like that, um, where somebody is exchanging something of value for the exploitation of a person, um, exploiting them through commercial sex or labor. Interesting. So what is the Blue Campaign, and how does it help combat human trafficking? So we are a national public awareness campaign designed to educate um, the general public, law enforcement, industries, and communities that are more susceptible to human trafficking. And really, it's two things. We want people to recognize what human trafficking is and how to properly report. And we do that through social media, raising awareness. We do it through billboards, out-of-home advertising, but also education, training, and awareness. We really want people to know what human trafficking is, that it's happening here in the U.S., and then how to appropriately respond. So we have a ton of resources on our website, dhs.gov slash blue campaign. You can take free trainings on demand. I think there's about 12 under our trainings tabs. We have awareness videos. We have toolkits, indicator cards. And all of our resources can either be printed and downloaded at home of no charge. Um, If that's not an option for you, we actually ship some of our hard copy materials to anybody in the U.S. and our territories at no charge as well. Terrific. So how can we recognize and report suspected trafficking if it is going on in our area? Yeah, so we definitely want to get educated on the indicators. So I know we're limited on time. So a couple of ones that I want to talk about really quickly, um, starting with someone not being in charge of their personal documents, whether that's their passport, um, their driver's license, their ID and their money. You know, as an adult, we usually have those things on hand, right? Whether it's in our back pocket or in our purse or our wallet. In a trafficking case, the trafficker is going to be in control of those documents. Um, We've also seen someone have a dramatic change in behavior. So, for example, if somebody is typically mild-mannered and they begin acting out, or uh, the opposite, if they usually have a lighthearted, bubbly personality and they start being withdrawn. Um, So any type of sudden dramatic change could be an indicator of human trafficking. And then the last one I want to discuss is if they defer to another person to speak for them. So if I'm at a grocery store, if I'm at a bank and I'm in line waiting to check out, and I see, um, you know, asking somebody a question and let's say I'm behind the desk, right? Or whether I'm in line with the person and I'm asking uh, the person a question and they're looking to the other person to speak for them, um, maybe not having eye contact. So when we talk about indicators, it can be uh, behavioral like those or it could be physical. So if someone is using force in their trafficking situation, they may show uh, signs of malnourishment, be disheveled, um, may show signs of bruising. 
Um, and so those are some things. It could be one, all. And the big one I want to talk about is really that gut feeling. If you see something that just doesn't seem right, it may not be right. We'd rather you call in to 911 if someone mm -hmm. is in immediate danger or please contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And their hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week available in over 200 languages, and you can report anonymously. So there's no need to fear of being right or wrong. We'd rather have you report than not. And their number is 1-888-373-7888. Or you can report directly to law enforcement by calling 1-866-347-2488. 2-3. Please lock those numbers in. You can also visit our website, dhs.gov slash blue campaign. We have both of those hotline numbers all over our page, but never intervene. Um, if you notice any indicators or have that gut feeling, like I said, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline, the DHS tip line or 911. Wow. Great, great tips. All right. We have about 45 seconds. So what can we do to get involved in Wear Blue Day? Please just super easy. Wear a piece of blue clothing, whether it's a dress, a jacket, a hat, a scarf, anything. Take a selfie, get a friend, a loved one, a coworker, take a ussy, post it on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, hashtag wear a blue day. Um, add us DHS blue campaign to help raise awareness as blue is the international symbolic color to raise awareness about hair. Terrific. Thank you so much, Brandy Bynum. I really appreciate you joining me today. What an important topic. And thank you for all of the work that you're doing for it. Thank you so much for inviting us. Have a good day. You too. I'm Michelle Gerson, the Passport Mommy. More coming up in a few. From Bregman, MD, where we're all about psych solutions, I'm your host, Linda Corley, and this is The Breakdown with Dr. B. I read an interesting article the other day, and the, the writer wrote that we teach medical first aid in schools and, you know, to many non-medical staff in the event of choking, for instance. And these are life-saving maneuvers that 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 do save lives every year to thousands of people. But what do we do about handling a mental health emergency? That's what she wrote. And you're right. I mean, she said, if a person is figuratively gasping for air, how do we gain the tools to recognize that they need help? Joining me today, along with Dr. Bregman, is the author of that article, Cindy Widas, who is the director of Mental Health First Aid and community outreach at Alpert Jewish Family Service in North Palm Beach County. Along with Cindy is Dr. Elaine Rotenberg, who is the Chief Clinical Officer at Alpert Jewish Family Service. I'm, I'm really intrigued. I wanna know more about Mental Health First Aid. How did this all come about? Well, Mental Health First Aid is all about teaching community members how to recognize signs and symptoms in individuals that might be developing a mental illness or in a crisis. So just like CPR and first aid, we all need to be trained to intervene until the professionals get there. 
So about five years ago, almost six years ago, Albert Jewish Family, actually you, Dr. Elaine, saw mental health first aid being uh, presented at a conference. And she thought, why don't we have that in Palm Beach County? So she did some research and found out that we, at that time, had only had three certified instructors to teach mental health first aid. And so uh, under the guidance of Dr. Elaine, we created a coalition of many, many agencies who would train, we got the funding together, who would train a certified instructor in mental health first aid to go out into Palm Beach County and make a difference. It is an evidence-based educational program that teaches community members how to help some save a life. Well, Dr. Rotenberg, uh, this is really essential right now. Tell us why. What's interesting about mental health first aid is that when I first learned about it, I, I thought it was unusual for ordinary citizens who were not mental health professionals to go out into their communities and even pay attention to mental health related things. And as we looked at it more and more, what we realized was that we are living in a generation that is so much, is experiencing so much stress and different types of trauma. And yet the issues of mental illness are and have been really put under the and swept under the carpet, a lot of stigma, a lot of shame related to uh, mental illness. And the thing about this course is that it takes away all of the stigma for mental health related issues. And it really helps folks realize that a mental illness is a treatable illness. And that if we recognize and respond to somebody instead of you know, kind of turning our back and being frightened if we see somebody crying in a corner or being nervous and, and out of control in a situation. If we respond and, and move toward that person, not away from that person, it can really make a difference in helping them get the help that they need. Dr. B, you know, you must be elated hearing about all of this because for about the last year, you were always saying just how overloaded psychiatrists have been in their offices and that if there was some sort of support before you uh, sort of at the gate it would really help alleviate uh, just being overwhelmed as your as your medical field is correct yeah, this should be just in the medical realm it shouldn't be stigmatized you know I've been in Miami for years you know that the people from islands would tell me that if they had a mentally ill person in the family, they'd throw them off the island. That's how bad it was. And I agree totally. People need to be more comfortable with it. There's to be in the realm of medical treatment. You know, a psychiatry mental health has been like a stepchild of medicine. You know, we're underfunded, people are scared of it. And I think it has really changed. When I started out, like in the late 70s, I had an office at the end of a, of a hallway. If a patient would come in and ask somebody, where's Dr. Brennan? Oh, one of those down the end of the hall. Okay, so the idea of changing the stigma and being able to have people recognize mental illness 
and be able to refer appropriately, I think is a great task that you've taken on. Just to give it some perspective, um, this course, which is a, a certified course that people take, they get a card like first aid and CPR card. You get a mental health first aid card if you take the course. But there have been over 200,000 people in the United States trained in mental health first aid, ordinary citizens. And when we started this five years ago, as Cindy said, there were there were no classes virtually happening in Palm Beach County at all. Maybe a couple in Miami, maybe a couple in South Florida. But we really decided to take this ground kind of grassroots approach and partner with as many local agencies, nonprofits, police departments, things like that. And Cindy, under her direction, has built a coalition. How, how big is it now, Cindy? 14 agencies and 80 instructors. So, Oh, that's incredible. And we've trained in five years. How many people have we trained now? 6,600. Oh, you guys wow. are fabulous. One of the things that this course does is it just teaches folks some of the basics, like how to give reassurance, how to assess for safety and then get somebody to help. And we actually measure the outcomes in terms of people who take the course, how many of them have intervene, have talked about mental illness, have, and what are, those numbers are, are amazing, Cindy, right? They Right. You know, people don't realize that mental illness is just as uh, disabling as a physical illness. So the class that we do, it's an eight hour class, and we actually do an activity that really hits home with this point. We give about 10 people a different illness, and some of them are mental illnesses and some are physical illnesses. We have them actually line up where they think they would go from the most disabling to the least disabling. And they hold and then, a card, right? So they hold yeah, a card, they hold a with card. the name of their illness. Yeah, and then the audience kind of moves them around and they kind of move around. And then we talk about what we notice. I give them the answers. They were um, The answers were from the World Health Organization where they actually interviewed people who had these illnesses or these challenges. And then we talk about what do they notice about the line that they just created. And it's always that the, the physical illnesses are on the least disabling side where the mental illnesses are on the most. And it kind of hits home to them that this really is as uh, important or as disabling as a physical illness. And, you know, we have an adult-focused mental health first aid and a youth-focused mental health first aid. And the youth one is geared for scout leaders, teachers, bus drivers, school secretaries, little league coaches, so that they can actually recognize what typical adolescent behavior is compared to some behavior that might be showing uh, a mental health challenge or developing a mental health challenge so that they can understand what we're talking about with a mental health challenge. I want to ask you, along with, you know, the exercises that you do and the training, when this person who's been trained goes out to their business or wherever and they do identify someone who is struggling in a big way, then what well, they, What do they do? Dr. Elaine started to say they are taught a five-step action plan, which is that little algae that's um, behind me, where they learn to assess the situation first. Is it safe for me to intervene? And are is the person I'm trying to help 
safe. And then we go into how to listen non-judgmentally. You know, we're all good listeners, but are we non-judgmental? Are we really listening to what they say? Are we showing them that we are listening? And then my favorite step of all is actually giving somebody reassurance. Reassurance is not advice. So we teach our participants, what's the difference between giving somebody advice and reassuring them? I hope you're going to feel better soon. I hope this professional is going to give you some answers. And then we go into self-care and encouraging how to get to that professional. So mental health first aid is all about getting the person to the professional. So this is something that can be um, utilized in everyday life. And it could be, you need these skills to talk to a next door neighbor. You need these skills to talk to a loved one. You can need these skills to talk to a team member, a colleague. So it's it's everyday skills. It's so interesting because especially in light of, you know, we're all thinking obviously in terms of some of the crises that have been, are happening right now. What, what's a little different about mental health first aid, which is, is why I really like it, is mental health first aid is, it's almost like a general baseline training that humans should have. All of us have learned that if you see somebody bleeding, you rip off a piece of your shirt and you tie it around their arm. Like we, we, we learn that we, we kind of know that. And it's not like we go around like looking for those crises. It's, it's a general big picture, level the playing field, destigmatizing mental illness and help people be less fearful to even respond to somebody humanly. That is what mental health first aid is. You know, I really appreciate that point, you know, that in my own career, I've tried to integrate in pediatricians' offices to have, you know, part of their uh, evaluation uh, questions to ask in mental health. So it's in other words, people get acculturated, just like you said, to that, this is what we do, it's nothing different, it's part of health. Uh, right? So why are we all all of a sudden segregating mental health? Uh, you exactly. know, so, and get it into the mainstream, get people to feel comfortable with it. People should learn how to uh, assess their own family members. You know, you know when somebody's in trouble and get some help. So I really appreciate this effort you guys are making. Andy and Dr. Lane, before we have to go, um, I can't believe the time is run out Tell us how can someone sign up for your program? Well, we encourage them to go to our website, which is the Albert Jewish Family Service website, which is at www.albertjfs.org. And then they can go to the mental health first aid page. And my contact information is on there because we have classes going on all the time. We don't just put a class out there and anybody who wants to come. We, their classes are set up. There's some pre-work for the participants to do before the class. And then my phone number, they can most certainly call me, which is 561-713-1851. And I'll be glad to get them into a course as soon as possible. Well, I want to thank you both. I, I, I can't believe that uh, we've run out of time, but I want to invite you on future podcasts because I think this is a conversation that 
that needs to keep going. Truly, we, we would we would love to. Where you know this is a highly replicable program, and we're really kind of moving it broader throughout at least our state. So we're happy to uh, talk to you and to want some want some more conversation time with uh, Dr. B. We really in agreement with what you guys are doing. It's like right on and it's um what we need now you know with what's going on in the world so let's uh, schedule like another one and and talk about some other little topics about what we're talking about we got yeah. lots so that'd be awesome <laughs> okay let's Great. keep up okay. the good work we'll talk yes. soon from Bregman MD, you've been listening to the latest episode of The Breakdown with Dr. B. And if you'd like more information or to speak to one of their top psychiatrists, just head to their website at BregmanMD.com to book a telepsychiatry visit from the comfort of your home. More coming up next on Passport Mommy. You're listening to Passport Mommy. I'm Michelle Gerson. And did you know that according to a new Goodwill National Poll amid the pandemic that the majority of current job seekers say that they lack the skills needed to get good jobs. So I'm really happy to have with me today Stephen Preston. He is the president and CEO of Goodwill Industries International. Stephen, thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Sure. So tell me a little bit about the results of this poll. Yeah, so we did this poll because we wanted to understand what people were experiencing in the job market. Right. We, we see all of this news about, you know, anybody who wants a job can find a job. There are 11 and a half million unfilled jobs in the country. It feels like there's opportunity out there for everyone. But we also know that there is a much higher number of people that don't show up in the unemployment statistics who are underemployed. They can't find full time work or they are in jobs that are very low paying and uh, really need better opportunities to support themselves and their families. So we decided to do this poll to say, what is your experience in the job market? Are you looking for a new job? Are you able to find a better job? What is your experience? So that's what the poll was all about. And what we found overwhelmingly um, was two big, big findings. Number one, a lot of people in lower paying jobs um, have looked for jobs and have consistently said, I've looked for a better job. I found something I wanted, but I just didn't have the skills. And then the other thing we found was people said, I want to get the skills, but I don't know how. Uh, and so it, uh, it, in a marketplace where companies are saying, I can't fill my jobs because I don't have people with the skills, and people saying, I want those jobs, but I need the skills, there's a huge opportunity here for us to come together and help people get the skills they need to compete for better jobs and find a better path forward for themselves and their families. I love that because I think even people who are older, they might have a very good skill set for what they've been doing all these years, but the landscape changes and maybe they haven't had the opportunity to gain the new skills that say somebody just out of college may have gained. So I think this is terrific. So when did Goodwill launch this initiative? Well, we, we conducted the, um, the research uh, earlier this year, and we just released the findings a couple of weeks ago. So this is really hot off the press. And it looked at um, a number of specific areas. We asked, we, we asked people if they had been looking for work over the last two years. So we got an understanding of people who were active. We asked people if they were in a job today that really wasn't an ideal job for them. And that meant 
Um, well, what's an ideal job? Well, an ideal job means I'm making enough money to support myself and my family, uh, and I see growth opportunities uh, for my future. Uh, and then the other portion uh, of, of the group that we looked at more intensively was people who are actually unemployed. So, um, you know, we kind of drilled into a number of different groups of people who either want something better or are actually actively looking for something better. Great. And so tell me how the pandemic disproportionately impacted women and people of color. Well, you know, certainly early on, uh, we saw that the jobless rates among women and people of color were higher. Um, Health outcomes were more challenging. Uh, Today, what we're seeing through the poll is that um, women, and especially women of color, uh, are more likely to say, that they feel this lack of perceived skills acutely. So when you look at job seekers who have said, you know, I didn't apply for jobs that I wanted because I didn't have the skills, uh, women of color were by far the highest sort of uh, demographic group uh, in that statistic. Um, Not surprisingly, the other group that pulled very high in this area was people who were making less than $30,000. Those were people who said, look, I'm looking for something better, but I just don't have the skills I need to compete for those jobs. Right. And so tell me, how can we get involved? Where can we find more information? Well, so you can always find more information uh, about what we're doing here in Goodwill.org. If you're interested in hearing a little bit more about uh, a program we called Rising Together, which is a coalition of, of major businesses and Goodwill to solve this problem, you'll see a banner that says Rising Together. If you are looking for skills and you're looking for a better job, you can go into Goodwill.org and you can actually um, – Uh, look for some skills. We can actually provide some skills through online training. We can actually help you locate a job center uh, that may be near where you live. So you can actually go into a job center uh, at Goodwill and get the support you need. That you can also find on the Goodwill.org website. Terrific. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Really important stuff for parents who are just looking to support their families and to make sure that they can get the job that they would like to get. I really appreciate all you're doing, Stephen Preston. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Passport Mommy. Well, thank you for getting the word out. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Passport Mommy. Enjoy the rest of your week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.